Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Nathan Leopold, Richard Loeb, Clarence Darrow, and the crime of the century. Now let's continue with our story about Leopold and Loeb. If news of the details of the murder shocked the country, they had an even greater impact on the two immediate families involved. Nathan Leopold Sr. actually met with the reporters on the front stoop of his house, but overcome with emotion, could only repeat again and again that his son could not possibly have done what he was accused of. Albert Loeb was already incapacitated by a heart condition. His wife and sons also declined to make any statement, but many of Loeb's friends did come forward to state that they found the accusations to be utterly implausible. This attitude had great implications for Loeb and Leopold as the irrational denial that prevented either family from retaining an attorney to stop any of the suspects' statements to their interrogators now continued to allow Crow to bolster his case further by taking both boys on a caravan throughout Chicago to various spots mentioned in their confessions, individuals identifying them in various locations with the pseudonyms they used while carrying out the crime. During this lengthy tour, various items were recovered, including Bobby Frank's shoes, his school pin, the burnt remnants of the blood-stained robe, and most incriminating, a diver eventually retrieved the wrecked Underwood typewriter right where the killers claimed they dumped it. Finally, Mike Leopold, Nathan Jr.'s brother, and Jacob Loeb, Dickie's uncle, sprang into action in an attempt to get the two teenagers legal advice. Mike conferred with Benjamin Backrack, a high-profile criminal defense attorney who had successfully represented Chicago aldermen and even heavyweight boxing champion Jack Johnson. Understanding his nephew's predicament, Jacob Loeb decided to reach out to an even more prominent individual, Clarence Darrow. By 1924, Darrow was nearing the conclusion of one of the most illustrious and controversial legal careers in U.S. history. Starting from a small law practice in the tiny Ohio town of Andover, Darrow eventually made his way to the city of Chicago, where he became famous and frequently vilified for representing various labor officials like Eugene Debs and Big Bill Haywood. A 1911 scandal involving a Los Angeles bombing case, which resulted in Darrow negotiating a plea deal and accusations of jury tampering via bribery, alienated the attorney from organized labor. 
Darrow then switched to criminal and civil defense, mostly involving defendants facing the death penalty. In over 100 cases, Darrow had only one defendant executed, and that was when he joined the defense only for the penalty phase of the trial. Despite a practically disheveled appearance, Darrow's quick legal mind and remarkable eloquence during impassioned closing arguments made him the most famous trial lawyer in America. But Darrow was also known as a cutting-edge, iconoclastic thinker who regularly chaired meetings of the Evolution Club in his Chicago home. This group met weekly to hear presentations by notable scholars on various different topics, including biology, religion, and sociology, and to discuss various compelling societal challenges and issues. However, although he did not realize he was on the verge of the two most high-profile cases of his career, Darrow was reluctant to get involved with the Loeb and Leopold case. He was 67, rheumatic, frequently suffered from bouts of neuralgia, and generally exhausted. In fact, when Jacob Loeb first came to plead with him to take the case, Darrow was bedridden and his wife tried to turn Loeb away. Dickie Loeb's uncle stormed into the house anyway, made his way to Darrow's bedroom, and pleaded with the attorney, promising any amount of money if we would only take the case. In the end, Darrow decided to represent Leopold and Loeb, most likely because public opinion was already calling for the teenager's execution. Darrow's opposition to the practice of veritable personal mania. He understood that saving the lives of two such inordinately unpopular defendants would be the greatest legal challenge of his lifetime. To him, that was more important than any amount of money. Darrow would actually have to appeal to a judge to get Crow to relinquish control of the two defendants. Crow had already engaged three Chicago-based psychologists to examine Leopold and Loeb, understanding that a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity was a likely Darrow tactic. This judge, John Caverly, the chief justice of the Cook County Criminal Court, eventually presided over the case. He ordered that the two accused be placed in the county jail and allowed Darrow and Backrack to confer with their clients. The immediate result of this interaction was that subsequently, when asked anything by Crow or anyone else, the two teenagers merely responded by invoking their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination, a departure for especially Leopold, who previously arrogantly delighted in intellectually sparring with his interrogators while not grasping that any incriminating statements would be used against him. The same public outrage over the two alleged murderers also began to focus on Darrow as well. He was rumored to have received a million-dollar fee to take the case. The families seemingly attempting to buy their son's lives in a manner unavailable to most murder suspects. His actual fee was far less, although he immediately located and hired three out-of-town psychiatrists to examine Loeb and Leopold. Crow craftily previously hiring any local psychiatric experts to preclude their enlistment by the defense. Leopold enthusiastically embraced his psychiatric interviews, a chance to demonstrate his intellect via discussion and standardized tests. Loeb was mostly bored and even dozed off on occasion. It was also here where Darrow began to craft a brilliant legal strategy to save his clients from execution. Darrow knew that he stood little chance before a jury, 
public sentiment against Loeb and Leopold had been whipped into a national frenzy. But if Loeb and Leopold tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, by Illinois law, a jury would also have to deliberate on this question. Again, for Darrow, a non-starter. That left Darrow only with the option of pleading his clients guilty and then persuading Judge Caverly to spare them from the noose. Darrow's entreaty would use information extracted from a comprehensive report compiled by two psychiatrists, Carl Bowman and Harold Holbert, after extensive interviews of the two defendants, certain family members and governesses. Presented by the defense in its entirety, it comprised over 300 pages of the case's official transcript and was most likely the lengthiest psychiatric analysis ever produced in a murder trial. It detailed numerous incidents of petty theft, vandalism, car theft, arson, and eventually the fraternity house burglaries. It also contained acknowledgment of the homosexual relationship of Loeb and Leopold, driven by Leopold's extreme attraction to Richard Loeb and Loeb's interest in Leopold as a perceived intellectually brilliant co-conspirator in their secret antisocial behaviors. Both boys also had suicidal tendencies, especially Loeb, even admitted independently to contemplating killing each other. One fundamental was omitted from this report, namely who had actually wielded the chisel that killed Bobby Franks. On July 21, 1924, Clarence Darrow, his co-counsels Ben and Walter Backrack, and male members of both the Loeb and Leopold families assembled for the first day of the preliminary hearing concerning Richard Loeb and Nathan Leopold. Typically, defendants plead not guilty, and a judge then determined if there was enough probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed. If he found that there was such probable cause, the judge would then set a date for the actual trial. Eventually, the two accused were led into the courtroom, impeccably dressed with hair slickly combed back in the style of the day. The two defendants were no longer squabbling with each other, ending several weeks of not conversing, agreeing that while facing a trial for their very lives, there was no sense in being consumed by personal acrimony. Robert Crowe represented the prosecution, the prosecutor deciding personally to pursue the case, predictably attracted by the massive publicity the crime had already generated, both nationally and even internationally. Darrow immediately lived up to his reputation. Although he had formulated his strategy well in advance, he surprised the court, the media, the prosecution, and even the defendants after a lengthy opening statement by pleading his clients guilty to both murder and kidnapping. Strategically, this was a brilliant maneuver on several fronts. It ambushed Crow by not allowing the prosecutor to potentially get two bites of the apple in attempting to condemn the defendants. If he was aware of the strategy in advance, he would withdraw most likely the kidnapping charge and attempt to retry it later. Darrow's plea circumvented that option. The decision as to what sentence the defendants received now was the sole responsibility of the judge who would be asked to personally condemn two teenagers as opposed to a jury. Additionally, any evidence that Crow wished to present concerned guilt or innocence, which was no longer relevant. The proceeding was no longer a trial, but actually would resemble a hearing where Darrow would present extenuating circumstances to mitigate a potential death sentence. 
Still, it was a risky strategy. Crow would certainly object to any attempt to present evidence of certain mental deficiencies, and Calverley might certainly exclude such evidence. Calverley also had previously sentenced five men to death. Perhaps he might have zero qualms about such a disposition, especially in this case. But Darrow gambled that the judge was, unlike a Robert Crow, open-minded enough to be persuaded. Facing the full confessions of the defendants and the mountain of evidence the prosecution had assembled, he felt he had no other viable option. After the judge announced that the hearing would commence in two days on July 23rd, Crow then emerged from the courtroom as boisterous as ever, proclaiming his confidence that any attempts at any variation of an insanity defense would be rejected by the evidence and that Loeb and Leopold would surely hang. His opening statement in the courtroom two days later, over 60 minutes in length, reiterated the dreadful nature of the crime, Crow literally claiming that these men are guilty of the most cruel, cowardly, dastardly murder ever committed in the annals of American jurisprudence. In response, Darrow spoke for only five minutes, mostly objecting to Crow's heated rhetoric and emphasizing, while horrible, the age of the defendants needed to be considered while rendering a verdict. This pattern continued for the rest of Crow's presentation of his case, 15 separate witnesses providing details and even the appearance of Bobby Frank's mother, a witness that only underlined the wisdom of Darrow's strategy. Clara Franks, a pitifully sympathetic figure. Darrow and his co-counsels only briefly cross-examined these witnesses, not wanting to amplify the gory details of the murder or its aftermath. For a week, Crow continued in this vein, presenting 81 witnesses, the prosecutor at least underlining the dreadful nature of the crime. On July 30th, he rested his case. Now it was up to the defense to present their case, consisting of mostly psychiatrists who would attempt to portray the defendants as not insane, but nevertheless afflicted in a way that hampered their ability to behave appropriately. Before the defense's first witness, Dr. William Allenson White, the superintendent of Washington, D.C.'s St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the U.S.'s largest mental institution, even began his testimony Prosecutor Crow registered an emphatic objection, claiming that if the defense wanted to implement an insanity defense, then a jury needed to be impaneled as required by the law. Within the past few days, the Holbert Bowman report had made its way into the newspapers, initially allegedly stolen from Darrow's secretary's desk by a journalist. Darrow then made copies available for Chicago's other newspapers and even sent one to Crow questions about whether this document was intentionally leaked were immediate, the report somewhat sympathetic to the two boys, indicating a history of abuse by governesses and behavior at an early age that was symptomatic of deep mental disturbance. It took two days of lengthy, contentious back and forth between the two sides, but finally, Calverly ruled that the defense could present psychiatric testimony and even the written psychiatric report he further indicated that he was willing, under the law, to hear any material the defense deemed appropriate to allow for mitigation. A parade of psychiatrists, doctors, and even classmates then proceeded to the witness stand for almost two weeks' testimony about the background, family life, attitudes, and behaviors of Leopold and Loeb was forthcoming. 
a process described by one newspaper as romping in psychiatric playgrounds, the personalities of Loeb and Leopold. Darrow also waged a subtle public relations campaign in which he had the fathers of the defendants issue a letter in the press stating that they did not wish to free their sons only to prove that they were not sane and that they wished to have Clarence Darrow's fee set by the Illinois State Bar Association. Darrow granted select sympathetic journalists access to Leopold and Loeb for interviews, a tactic that humanized them before the public. His parade of expert witnesses managed to diffuse the white-hot atmosphere surrounding the proceedings, the lengthy testimony not nearly as sensational as the previously lurid testimony concerning the specifics of the murder. Prosecutor Crow, initially with an ironclad case and positive image, began to antagonize the press with picayune challenges and objections that only served to lengthen tedious psychiatric testimony in a courtroom that was uncomfortable on hot Chicago summer days. Darrow was able to skewer the prosecutor over the lack of access to the clients, intimating that confessions were improperly obtained by a prosecutor who had taken advantage of and trampled on the constitutional rights of the teenagers. Crow actually thundered in response, I will confess that I violated a number of constitutional rights and intend to continue that as long as I am the state's attorney. When a man is charged with a crime, I'm not going to telephone him and ask him to talk to a lawyer before I talk to him. Such bombast did not go unnoticed. The progressive UK news magazine, The New Statesman, commenting on Crow's performance, Quote, perhaps the most charitable thing to say is that he provided the psychiatrists with a subject of study not much less interesting than Leopold and Loeb, unquote. On the afternoon of August 19th, Robert Crow rested the state's rebuttal of the evidence brought forward by the defense. Only the final statements of the attorneys for both sides remained. On August 19th, the prosecution went first with a rather bland presentation by Assistant State's Attorney Thomas Marshall. Using a soft, less-than-dramatic voice, he mainly cited legal precedent and definitions to justify the death penalty for Leopold and Loeb. His presentation lasted until the middle of August 20th, his fundamental point that if Leopold and Loeb did not hang, then all of those previously executed had suffered an injustice. Unwittingly, his perspective about those already condemned in Illinois was shared by the defense, who considered all capital punishment as unjust. Assistant State's Attorney Savage was next, his oratory both combative and histrionic. His appeal was emotional, not analytical, proclaiming, You have before you one of the most cold-blooded, cruel, cowardly, dastardly murders that was ever tried in the history of any court. Perhaps anticipating Darrow's final comments, Savage added, Mercy? Why, Your Honor, it is an insult in a case of this kind to come before the bar of justice and beg for mercy. I know Your Honor will be just as merciful as these two defendants here as they were to Bobby Franks. Some in the courtroom were clearly emotionally moved by this harangue. Jacob Franks so overcome that he left before Savage concluded. During the ensuing recess, Leopold, usually smiling or even smug during much of the proceedings, broke down while speaking with his brother. My God, Mike, do you think we'll swing after that? 
Loeb was less impressed, later describing Savage's dramatic gestures and vigorous tone as akin to a college cheerleader. Walter Backrack, the first attorney to speak for the defense, spent a great deal of two court sessions emphasizing the psychiatric diagnosis of the two defendants by the defense team's experts. His fundamental argument revolved around the concept that although both Leopold and Loeb were legally sane, they suffered from mental conditions that should allow for mitigation. His reliance on expert testimony seemed to fall flat and was not compelling, but perhaps it set the stage for what would be the climax of the trial. When Backrack's presentation concluded, court was adjourned. Clarence Darrow would not begin his summation until the afternoon of August 23rd, so anticipated throughout the city of Chicago that a mob descended on the courthouse, hoping to push into the courtroom. This throng congregated in the stairwells, common areas, and hallways leading to the sixth-floor chamber where Darrow was scheduled to speak. Twice after the midday recess, the famed attorney attempted to begin his summation, only to stop the noise of spectators emanating from the hallway outside of the court too boisterous, police and bailiffs struggling to push the crowd out of the courtroom's proximity. Angrily, the judge contacted the city police chief directly, demanding that order be restored. Within minutes, additional police resorting to billy clubs eventually removed the source of this distraction. For the third time, Darrow rose and began his presentation. His summation would last for 12 hours, over three days, including Saturday morning. Carefully prepared and brilliant in its rhetoric and reason, it was described at the time as the finest moment in Darrow's storied career. He addressed many fundamental issues, including the rarity of a defendant pleading guilty, subsequently receiving the death penalty, and added that no one who had pled guilty and was as young as Leopold and Loeb had ever been hanged. He clarified issues regarding his compensation and that of his expert witnesses and turned the issue of money on its head, stating that if any poor individual of the same age pled guilty to the same charge, not a state's attorney in Illinois wouldn't have accepted a life sentence. He refuted the idea that the murder was the result of a need for money. He even thanked Crow for his diligence in solving the case, sentiments that he emphasized were not sarcastic but genuine. Then Darrow began a more philosophical tangent that took up the bulk of his presentation, imploring the judge to rise above the mob mentality that gripped the media, the city, even the prosecution itself, a prosecution that he implied was just as unbalanced and cruel as the defendants. What is my friend's idea of justice? He says to this court, give them the same mercy that they gave to Bobby Franks. Is that the law? Is that justice? Is that what a court should do? For God's sakes, if the state in which I live in is not kinder, more humane, more considerate, more intelligent than the mad act of these two mad boys, I am sorry I have lived so long. Unlike the previous speakers who were not nearly as engaging, Darrow, for his entire 12 hours, held the rapt attention of the entire courtroom, including the judge, as he reached his conclusion, the great attorney made one last appeal for intelligence and legal integrity. The easy thing and the popular thing to do is to hang my clients. I know it. Men and women who do not think will applaud. The cruel and the thoughtless will approve. It will be easy today. But your honor stands between the future and the past. I know the future is with me and what I stand for here. 
not merely for the lives of these two unfortunate lads, but for all of the young, and as far as possible, for all of the old. With that noble sentiment, Clarence Darrow is finished. Historical accounts agree that at the conclusion of the veteran attorney's oration, each of the courtroom's occupants were deeply moved, some openly weeping. Two of these spectators with tears in their eyes included Dickie Loeb and Judge John Caverly. Court was adjourned until August 26th. On the 26th, the final summation for the defense was presented by Darrow's other co-counsel, Benjamin Backrack, who certainly realized that the longer he spoke, the more he would diminish Darrow's remarkable performance. He briefly summarized the basics of his co-counsel's remarks and handed the stage to Robert Crow. Although he would speak for as long as Darrow, Crow was not nearly as articulate or high-minded. Like Savage, his presentation was bombastic, but in a manner that was even more of a distraction. One Chicago reporter described the prosecutor's demeanor. He spoke in a frenzy. He shouted and stamped and waved his arms. Now he thrust his face, purple with the strain of his apoplectic speech, into the faces of Loeb and Leopold. Now he strode before Judge Caverly, shaking his fist as he put all of his lung power into some climax or another. It was all climax for that matter. There were no valleys in the speech, just peaks. Into the faces of the two young defendants he hurled epithet after epithet, his eyes blazing and his voice screaming anger. This went on for two days, and Crow, his voice eventually raspy, had to even ask for a brief recess to regain it. Perhaps trying to match Darrow's eloquence, Crow invoked the 18-year-old soldiers who had died at Flanders Fields, asserting that if they were old enough to die for their country, that certainly Loeb and Leopold were old enough to die for their transgressions. He also sarcastically ridiculed the defense team's psychiatrists as a bunch of apologists. Darrow as a dangerous radical and an associate of socialists and communists Leopold is a godless atheist, most likely punished by the divine intervention of his glasses inexplicably appearing at the scene of the crime. But at the 11th hour, Crow made a serious error that might have actually tipped Judge Crow's decision. Discussing testimony in which a single detective claimed that Leopold bragged to him that he would get a sympathetic judge, an assertion that Darrow ripped apart on cross-examination, Crow implied that Leopold and the defendant's attorneys, through their demeanor, certainly believed that Caverly was just such a judge. Darrow immediately objected, but unfortunately for Crow, the judge did not need any prodding from the defense. Caverly perceived this as a backdoor attempt to intimidate the judge into a death sentence. The inference that a life sentence could only be the result of the defense compromising or even bribing Caverly. The judge was so angry that he ordered Crow's offensive comments stricken from the record. The chief prosecutor, stunned, quickly wrapped up his case and profusely apologized, but the damage was done. Brusquely, the judge then explained that he needed some time to come to a decision and added that anyone who harassed him during this interval would be jailed immediately. He set the date of September 10th to impose his sentence. During this time period, Caverly received so many death threats and bizarre entreaties concerning the case that when the fateful day of judgment arrived, it was felt that a three-car motorcade, complete with shotgun-toting police, 
was an appropriate transport to the criminal courts building. At 9.30 sharp, he entered the courtroom, most of the principals already seated. Loeb's parents, his father ill and his mother not wishing to be part of the spectacle, remained at their estate in Charlevoix, Michigan. Loeb's uncle Jacob and brother Alan were present, as well as Nathan Sr. and Mike Leopold. Leopold and Loeb were then brought in and seated at the defense table. Asked by Caverly if they had anything to say before sentencing, Benjamin Backrack answered no on their behalf. Then, after allowing photographers to take some final photos, the judge began reading. As he initially proceeded through the opinion, discussing the guilty plea, indicating that it should not convey any leniency, the absence of insanity, and the perverse cruelty of the crime, spectators, including Leopold, attempting to anticipate the sentence, felt that Caverly was headed towards condemnation. But then the judge seemed to switch gears, essentially boiling down his decision to one overriding factor, the age of the defendants. He noted that in Illinois, only twice before had defendants of a similar age been put to death, and he further stated that he did not wish to add to that number. Caverly then made clear that it was intent that both Loeb and Leopold never be paroled, and based on their youth, a life sentence might even be harsher than death. He then moved on to the sentence for murder, life in prison, for kidnapping, 99 years. The prisoners shook hands with their attorneys before being quickly removed from the courtroom. Crow and Darrow also shook hands. Both men quickly left, the prosecutor stoic. He refused to criticize the judge's sentence, but reiterated that he personally thought that the death penalty was the appropriate sentence and that his office had done everything possible to achieve that end. Jacob Franks claimed that he was satisfied with the verdict, despite earlier calls for vengeance. Jacob Loeb issued a statement acknowledging the pain experienced by everyone connected to the case and the community at large. The attention and national spotlight that the two teenagers experienced quickly dimmed. Not so for Clarence Darrow. The Leopold and Loeb case appeared to be the final climax of a remarkable legal career, but less than a year later, in July of 1925, he played a major role in what became known as the Scopes Monkey Trial, a proceeding against a teacher, John Scopes, who had allegedly violated Tennessee state law by teaching the theory of evolution, which was contrary to the Bible. In many ways, the trial was part philosophical debate, part circus, with Darrow placing populist William Jennings Bryan on the stand and questioning him on his fundamental beliefs. This process did not go well for Bryan, who died five days after the trial's conclusion, possibly of public embarrassment, the trial a media sensation broadcast via radio across the U.S. It only bolstered Darrow's reputation as the foremost trial attorney in the U.S., Although his fee in the Loeb-Leopold case was initially rumored to be $1 million, the families actually subsequently haggled with the famed attorney, beating him down to $70,000, based on the large amount already paid to the psychiatrists. Darrow kept 35000 and gave the rest to his law firm, as per his ongoing professional agreement. Still, this was the largest fee he was ever paid. Darrow spent the rest of his life attached to various Chicago law firms, but never appeared in a courtroom again, content to write and lecture. 
his legacy as one of the greatest criminal defense attorneys in American history already secured. He died in Chicago on March 13, 1938. After receiving hundreds of death threats during the trial, Judge John Caverly suffered a nervous breakdown only two weeks after the conclusion of the case. He returned to the Chicago courts, eventually requesting a transfer to family court, where he spent the rest of his career presiding over divorce cases. Albert Loeb suffered a fatal heart attack and died in October of 1924, one month after the trial ended. He had not seen his son Richard since the boy's arrest on May 29th. The Leopolds quickly moved from their Kenwood location, and their house was demolished within a few years. Nathan Leopold Sr. passed away in 1929. Both of his surviving sons changed their last names to escape the case's notoriety. On the 11th of September, 1924, Leopold and Loeb would begin serving hard time at Joliet State Prison, a forbidding stone edifice housing some of Illinois' most hardened criminals. One immediate hardship was the end of the meals that they were able to order from a Chicago restaurant during their trial. Although they granted interviews upon their entrance to the prison, Loeb would never publicly speak again, and Leopold waited 20 years before interacting with a journalist. This despite repeated press attempts to provide updates on the successive anniversaries of their incarceration. Possibly to separate the two prisoners, Leopold was quickly transferred to Stateville Prison, a brand new maximum security facility. The formerly high-profile prisoners were so isolated that Leopold only found out about the 1929 death of his father from a prison employee. Decades later, what Leopold and Loeb were actually doing during this time period was documented in Leopold's 1958 autobiography, Life Plus 99 Years, a less-than-reliable publication that was written when Leopold was attempting to be paroled embellishing the supposed positive works and rehabilitation of both inmates. By 1931, the two convicts were reunited at Stateville, Leopold working to restore the prison library, trash during a prison riot, and Loeb in the greenhouse. Leopold's assignment allowed him privileges not afforded most inmates, and he was able to interact with Richard Loeb on a daily basis. They established a correspondence school to educate inmates that also afforded them even greater freedoms and even their own unsupervised workspaces in the prison. Ample money from both of their families allowed for the purchase of tobacco and additional food from the prison commissary and relative comfort compared to other inmates. Despite their privileges, both Loeb and Leopold frequently got into physical altercations with other prisoners. In 1936, Loeb's cellmate, a career criminal named James Day, began an ongoing confrontation with Loeb over money and commissary purchases. This dispute serious enough to precipitate Day's transfer to a nearby cell. For reasons that remain unclear, Loeb agreed to meet with Day in the shower room and the correspondence school facility at noontime when the rest of the prison would be in the mess hall, or some, like Leopold, in their cells. The shower room had a door that could be locked from the inside. Eventually, Loeb stumbled through this doorway, nude and covered with blood. Guards rushing to the scene confronted Day, who followed Loeb out of the shower area, handed them a straight razor, and claimed that Loeb had attempted to attack and sexually assault him, but that he successfully fought him off. 
Day was only wearing his prison-issued pants. Rushed to a hospital, Loeb was slashed over 50 times, a gaping wound across his throat, the most serious. But cuts were present all over his entire body. Despite numerous transfusions and the work of several doctors, he died a few hours later, aged 30. Day was eventually tried for Loeb's murder in the town of Joliet, Illinois, and was acquitted of the crime in less than an hour. A jury member stated later that they accepted Day's laughable story concerning Loeb's aggression, had no sympathy for the victim, and considered the murder of a homosexual good riddance. Loeb's body was transported to Chicago and cremated, the ashes scattered privately. For almost two decades, that was the last major headline concerning Leopold and Loeb. That did not mean that Leopold himself was inert. In fact, he was aggressively pursuing behaviors that, although positive, could also be perceived as attempting to improve any chance he had of parole. His first contact with a journalist involved his volunteering for a prison malaria project in which prisoners were infected with the disease via mosquitoes and subjected to experimental drugs. Leopold became heavily involved in this endeavor and was photographed by Life magazine in its coverage of the breakthrough experiment. He also signed a contract to donate his corneas upon his death among 200 inmates who did so, a gesture that was reported in several newspapers. Leopold's prison assignment as an x-ray technician at Stateville was also perceived at the time as productive rehabilitation. What was not known until much later was that the x-ray machine was located in an office with two doors that could be locked, allowing Leopold to enjoy sexual relations with other much younger prisoners he found attractive, relationships he aggressively cultivated through gifts of money and manipulation and promises of help once these prisoners were released from jail. This practice went on for much of the last two decades of Leopold's incarceration, despite the strict prison prohibition of such behavior. Fortunately for Leopold, such activity went officially undocumented. His 99-year sentence was reduced in 1949, and his public image continued to improve. Under Illinois law, any inmate serving a life sentence could apply for parole after 20 years. Any specific term of imprisonment need only be served for one-third of the sentence, initially in Leopold's case, a third of 99 or 33 years. The reduction in 1949 allowed for his potential release in 1953. Fortunately for Leopold, Judge Caverly ordered his sentences to be served concurrently, not consecutively. However, a parole board rejected Leopold's request and continued his parole request until May of 1965. Shortly after this decision, Leopold's brother Mike died. Leopold's brother Sam was more distant than Mike, who upon his death set up a trust fund for his incarcerated brother, perhaps understanding that Sam and Nathan did not get along. Despite his recent parole rejection, Leopold cooperated with the Saturday Evening Post on an April 1955 four-part series that was sympathetic. Even more eventful was the 1956 novel Compulsion, written by Meyer Levin, a runaway bestseller that was a very thinly disguised account of the Loeb and Leopold murder and an eventual film starring Orson Welles. Once again, Nathan Leopold was an American celebrity, although he hated the book and sued Levin and 20th Century Fox for invasion of privacy, an unsuccessful suit that dragged on for most of the rest of his life. 
perhaps attempting to tell his side of the story. In 1958, Leopold published Life Plus 99 Years, a sanitized autobiography, also undertaken to persuade any future parole proceedings. A bestseller, the book created an additional groundswell for Leopold's release. The sentiment finally played out on February 13, 1958, when Nathan Leopold emerged from Stateville Prison, a free man. Leopold had accepted a position as an X-ray technician at the Church of the Brethren in remote Castaner, Puerto Rico, three hours away from San Juan. Eager to avoid not attention but unfavorable publicity, he decided inaccessibility in such a modest and humble endeavor could only help his public image. On paper, the remainder of Leopold's life was the picture of rehabilitation, he eventually did relocate to San Juan to study social work. He helped with fundraising for the Brethren organization and met a flower shop owner named Trudy Feldman, a widow who had moved to Puerto Rico to live with her first husband. The couple married in 1961, the same year he received his master's in social work. His official parole ended in 1963, a liberating development that allowed him unfettered travel both to the U.S. and internationally an opportunity he took full advantage of, journeying in the 60s to some of the most exotic locales in the world, including Singapore, Fiji, throughout Western Europe and the Middle East. He had many friends and associates who welcomed him on his travels throughout the world. Professionally, he never seemed to stay in one place for very long, but his charity work renewed interest in ornithology, relationships developed through social work outreach and teaching endeared him to the greater Puerto Rican community. When he died on August 29, 1971, at the age of 66, his wife Trudy was at his side. His body eventually donated to the University of Puerto Rico. Leopold's obituaries described a kind of Renaissance man who had dedicated his last years to atonement and selfless service. The truth was actually much darker even the donation of his body had a subtext, his brother Sam previously telling him that there was no way that he would be buried in the family crypt in Chicago. And, unfortunately for Nathan Leopold, he was a candid and prolific letter writer. Many of these missives were preserved and made available in recent years. They depict a lifestyle and outlook that differed greatly from Leopold's carefully cultivated public image. From his very first days in Puerto Rico, Leopold ignored the conditions of his parole, drinking alcohol, illegally driving an automobile, and engaging in all sorts of casual flings with gay men. Leopold was strongly attracted to teenage boys and would use his social worker access to meet and manipulate impoverished teenagers into physical relationships. His years as an inmate and his access to trust fund money from his father and brother making such manipulation literal child's play. During his courtship with Trudy, he informed her that his ongoing diabetes rendered him impotent. She married him anyway, eventually suspecting that the marriage was merely a failed ruse to try and gain respectability and an early termination of his parole. Despite Leopold's repeated denials and assertions that she was paranoid and irrational, Trudy was confronted with obvious infidelity with numerous male lovers, some even former convicts he encouraged to relocate to Puerto Rico. Their relationship revolved around Trudy being more of a domestic as opposed to a wife, the two frequently traveling separately as the years wore on.
As he got older, Leopold became even more arrogant, egotistical, and irascible to the point of insufferability. Trudy desperately wanted to separate, but was so dominated that she worried about how she might affect Leopold's public image. Her concern and affection that lasted right up until the day of Leopold's death ended when she was notified of the terms of Nathan Leopold's will. Although the couple in 1966 collaborated on such a document that made Trudy the main beneficiary upon Nathan's death, Leopold secretly rewrote his will in the last month of his life. His sizable assets were split up in differing amounts among the adult men who were his lovers during their teenage years. The largest bequest went to a now-married Puerto Rican family man in his 30s who Leopold seduced when the boy was 15. Besides money, this man would receive the title to the condo that Trudy shared with Leopold upon her death. Perhaps the shocking turn of events knocked the scales from Trudy's eyes. No longer quiet about their fundamentally abusive and exploitative relationship, she resolved to write a book and tell the world the truth about her ex-husband, that as a teenager, prison inmate, an ex-con, Nathan Leopold had never changed from the manipulative, deceitfully arrogant, self-absorbed, unabashed hedonist of his youth. Even in his last years, he kept a framed photo of Richard Loeb prominently displayed in his home. To those who asked about it, he nonchalantly remarked, he was the greatest friend I ever had. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about the Leopold Loeb case. Information for this podcast came from the books Leopold and Loeb, The Crime of the Century by Hal Higdon and Arrested Adolescence, The Secret Life of Nathan Leopold by Eric Rabain. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, Please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>